Hi, everyone. Welcome to the third season of Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winnie Da Silva. Storytelling is our most powerful tool for changing anything in the world today. This compelling quote from Holly Gordon sums up my aspirational goal for this podcast, sharing stories to change you, your leadership, your team, your company. As an executive coach and leadership strategist for over 20 years, I've come to know and work with some pretty incredible people. This podcast is designed to share their inspiring stories and practical ideas you can use to develop yourself as a leader and as a person. Thank you for supporting me in this podcast. If you've listened to an episode and felt its impact, could you tell someone about it? Maybe forward an episode, post about it on social, or text someone who might be interested in listening. If you could share just one, I'd be grateful. Holly Gordon is the Chief Impact Officer for Participant Media. While she doesn't make the award-winning movies her company produces, such as An Inconvenient Truth, Spotlight, Green Book, and many, many more, Holly and her team build campaigns around these films to inspire action and change by partnering with grassroots organizations and activists on the front lines. Yes, this is a real job. Holly also co-founded Girl Rising, a global campaign for girls' education, and she was the executive producer for the Girl Rising film at the center of this movement. Forbes magazine named the Girl Rising campaign the number one most dynamic social initiative of 2012. Holly was also selected by Fast Company as a member of the League of Extraordinary Women and named by Newsweek and Daily Beast as one of 125 women of impact. Earlier in her career, Holly was a producer at ABC News. Holly's fascinating and expansive background paired with her breadth and depth of thinking on social change, storytelling, and leadership. Uh, I can't help but hope that Holly will write a book someday soon. Humans have always organized themselves and decided to make change as a result of story. Whether it's around a campfire, at a funeral, the first day of the new year when you tell a story to yourself about what you're gonna change, and then you share that story with others. We tell stories to each other as a way to organize our internal selves and connect it to our external selves. And that is just a very human thing. Stories live inside you and then they become purpose when they are expressed outside of you. And I'll credit my friend Laura Golinski for that insight, but that's how a story becomes purpose. And then change happens when you share something with someone and you make an agreement to do the thing and then change begins. So storytelling is our most powerful tool for changing anything in the world today. Holly Gordon, thank you so much for being on my show. I'm really honored to have you here today. We actually met for the first time not that long ago because I worked with your husband and he talked about you quite a bit, the conversations you had together, how you challenged and refined each other professionally and personally. So I really wanted to meet you and we had a great conversation. We did. And I realized <laughs> that you and Peter have your own compelling stories about who you are as leaders which we're going to explore yours today. But then there's another story which centers on your relationship with Peter and how your partnership has impacted each of you as people, but perhaps even more specifically, you know, as leaders. And we're going to explore that as well, but not today. Great. You've had actually an amazing career, which I think most people would truly admire. I know I do. Could you give us like a few highlights from your career? Like what are some of the things that you've done that you truly loved or enjoyed the most? 
Oh, Winnie, what a nice question to start with, because it gets me to think about all the great times that I've had over time. When I think about my career, when you say that I've had a great career, it's such an interesting thing to even hear someone else saying, because for me, my career has really been an adventure of discovery as opposed to something that I planned. I do forward plan a lot, but I haven't forward planned my career in a way that looks like architectural design. More, I've always centered on, is this job challenging me? Am I finding it really interesting? And am I able to bring value and be my best self and feel generative in the work that I'm doing? Is it satisfying my curiosity? Do I have great relationships around me? Am I growing every day? What are the jobs that I've loved the most? Because that's always been the question I've asked, is this something I'm curious about and I'm excited about doing? Every time I've gotten to a place in a position where I'm not saying yes to that, I've changed. So I've loved every job I've had, actually. I think my real highlights would be my first job out of college. I was at ABC News. I was the assistant to the executive producer of World News Tonight with Peter Jennings, sitting in a newsroom, literally three feet away from Peter as he wrote his evening pages, an incredible first job out of college. Sort of the beginning of my whole life's journey around storytelling is the center of the work that I do. ABC was a 12-year run full of crazy challenges and adventures. There's nothing more challenging than knowing that You get an assignment at 9 or 10 in the morning, and by 6 p.m., the red light is going to go on a camera to a national audience, and your story better be in. Wow. And it better be good, and it better be accurate, right? Right. So ABC took me all around the world, and I learned a tremendous amount from that job. And then my next real high point would have been Girl Rising, which was building a global campaign for girls' education that had a film at the center taking storytelling as a tool for change and judging it, if you will, into a global campaign that had a movie at the center. And then I think lastly, the job that I have now has been incredible at Participant Media, where I run the impact team for a movie company that was founded by Jeff Skoll to tell stories that can inspire people to take action in the world. I don't make the movies, but my team helps to make the movies make a difference. If you think that I started with evening news broadcast to try to tell stories that could make a difference. I'm ending with the other end of the spectrum, which is not ending, but I'm now working in a film company in deep, long form, immersive content that's focused on the same goal, storytelling to change hearts and minds and inspire action. So your title at Participant Media is Chief Impact Officer. What does that mean? How does that translate to what it is that you do at a media and film company? Sure. To understand why participant needs a chief impact officer, it's important to understand participant. Participant is a film production company based in Hollywood, started originally by Jeff Skoll, who was the co-founder and first president of eBay, who believes that storytelling is a vital tool to drive positive social change. He founded Participant amongst three different organizations, all designed to make an impact, the Skoll Foundation. He founded Capricorn, which is an impact investing arm, mostly focused on climate. And he founded Participant, a Hollywood company focused on telling feature length documentaries and narrative films, all of which have a social message at the center. And right out of the gates in 2006, An Inconvenient Truth was one of the first films that Participant made. Since then, the company has made over 100 films, several dozen 
Academy Award wins, I think over 50 nominations. Things like Spotlight, Food Inc., Waiting for Superman, Wonder, Roma, most recently Judas and the Black Messiah. So we have a film development side of the company where we're always looking for great artists. We believe artists see around corners, that artists, through their story, the stories they tell, they are often the canaries in the coal mine for the things that we need to pay attention to. And so at Participant, we trust artists who bring us projects and say, this has to be made. And inevitably, the movies take two to three years, the shortest to produce. But again and again, our films seem to hit a zeitgeist moment, including Judas and the Black Messiah, as a contribution to the Black Lives Matter movement. The film side makes the movies. And then when we're bringing the movies into the world, the question that we asked on my side is, how do we make these movies have the biggest impact in the world? Whether that be influencing narrative change, changing what people believe, whether that be driving participation through petitions, connecting with Congress, donations, that clear call to action where every individual can make a difference, or whether that means trying to change laws and policies by engaging with lawmakers and policy leaders around our films. My team is about a dozen plus people, and we build campaigns around our films that try to take storytelling and inspire action and change. So that sounds like an amazing role. And it sounds like you're the catalyst or the bridge or the connecting tissue between the content that's created and the impact that participant media wants to make. So you're trying to figure out who are the players, what are the levers that you could pull to enact that change or impact. But then I assume participate or have conversations and navigate some of those relationships to make some of these things happen, like laws and policies and changing the narrative. So is that how you see it or how does that work? Absolutely, Winnie. And I'm so glad you used the word bridge because what my team really acts as is a bridge, a bridge between the stories and the movie and the sort of sparkle of Hollywood to the everyday activists who have dedicated their lives to driving change. So we partner with grassroots organizations and activists on the front lines People like Ai-jen Poo at the National Domestic Workers Alliance, who was our partner on Roma to try to use that film to advance protections for domestic workers, and who's very much involved in the Biden plan for protecting care workers generally in the care economy. Or Civic Georgia, the organization we partnered with on John Lewis' Good Trouble during the 2020 election cycle to try to get out the vote for marginalized and traditionally suppressed communities across Georgia. So we are always partnering with folks who are really the heroes of every movement in the trenches every day and trying to use the catalytic impact of a film launch and the publicity and water cooler energy that a major media project and the star power that comes along with it can contribute to their movement. Actually, one great example is the film Dark Waters that we released in 2019 that starred Mark Ruffalo, Anne Hathaway, Bill Pullman. And it's the story of a lawyer who's been trying to fight forever chemicals. The story was about DuPont manufacturing Teflon and polluting the community around the factory and a lawyer's fight to regulate forever chemicals. Mark Ruffalo, who played the lawyer in the film Rob Balot, continues to be a huge advocate for the work 
And because of his deep engagement and coming along with us to Congress and across North Carolina, there's been more activity on forever chemical legislation in the last 18 months than there have been in the last 18 years. Wow, that is incredible. That's something to be very proud of. (laughs) Well, it's a team effort for sure. Yeah. So I'm just kind of curious because I don't know much about this industry. Is this happening in other media or other companies that are producing and creating movies? Do they have a Holly? (laughs) Is there a chief impact officer? There are more today than there were four years ago when I first got this job. So there are a couple springing up. But what's also springing up, and by the way, the more the merrier, the more the merrier, because we need changing. If we're going to solve the problems that we have today, we must shift the beliefs and behaviors of people at scale. And storytelling and major movies is a great way to do that. So yes, there are some more chief impact officers. There are also more production companies that have a perspective. I'll just name a few. So Reese Witherspoon's Hello Sunshine. Her focus on telling stories where women are the central characters and the narrators of their own experience is game-changing in Hollywood. And it was great to see a $900 million valuation of that company they recently sold. Reese and her partners built that from nothing. And the perspective was, let's tell stories from a woman's perspective, which had been under-emphasized across Hollywood for decades. You have Ava DuVernay, who started Array, and she's telling stories about the Black experience in America. And she's also producing amazing content. Macro, which was started by Charles King, focused on stories of African-Americans and people of color. So these are efforts to stand up similar kinds of companies, but whereas Participant has a very broad lens to the kinds of stories we tell, Hello Sunshine, Array, Macro, they have a more specific lens about the stories and the perspectives that they're lifting through the creativity of their content. It just seems like an amazing idea. Like you said, there can't be too many, but it's exciting, I'm sure for you, that you were maybe one of the first people to have that kind of a role, to be that bridge, because certainly it seems like more and more movies are being made around issues and around topic areas that people really care about and want to see change. Definitely. Many of the words that you're using resonate with me as I think about my own work and I think about leadership, like shifting behaviors at scale, changing hearts and minds. I think that true leadership does those things, hopefully for good, around development of people, development of great ideas that make a difference in the world. What are your thoughts as it relates to some of those things as it relates to leadership? I've been thinking a lot about the difference between leadership and management, and both of them are really, really important. So leadership leans into vision. It really is about telling a story of possibility that other people can imagine and buy into. So charting the path of something that is yet uncreated, is yet unachieved, is yet invisible. It's the way Martin Luther King painted a picture on the front steps of the Lincoln Memorial so many years ago, and a picture that we're still trying to achieve today. But his words were so lofty and so full of vision that people came along with him and still are seeking the vision that he put forward, the challenge that he laid down. There's the vision side, which is really a challenge to achieve something that's just out of reach, but that's possible. The second is around persuasion. So the ability to persuade people to come along with you. People confuse persuasion with telling, whereas I think the persuasion is that what happens, it's the gap between sharing a vision 
and then pausing and waiting and listening for the response. So it's almost a call and response. So persuasion is about hearing people and their fears and their hopes as they come along with you and listening enough that you have persuaded them to join the fight. And the third piece around leadership is relationships, which is really building trusted relationships with those folks who are coming along with you and managing those relationships effectively. They have put their trust in you as their leader, and so you owe them accountability for that trust. And then when it comes to management, management is very much around how do you scale leadership and operationalize it. So I think of it as process, systems, structures, operational nuts and bolts of getting multiple people to achieve great things together. What are the processes? What are the deadlines? What are the parameters of the work? Roles and responsibilities, that sort of thing. So management is all about rules and effectively establishing rules that unlock people's creativity and their ability to own their own contribution. But leadership is actually a bit freer than that. It's much more about possibility. It's the marriage of the two that goes from being like a single actor or activist leader into a leader of an organization is when you can actually marry those two effectively. And do you see those two, like they have to be two different people or do you see one person being able to be a manager and a leader at the same time? Or is it like you're a manager and then you graduate to a leader? I think you can have really great leaders who are awful managers and you can have really great managers who aren't great leaders. I think you can definitely be both. The calibration of the two becomes really important. But I think that all leadership is actually about relationships and partnership. Even if you're both, you're still going to need partners to make a team run. And I think that we've really done ourselves a disservice to so often talk about leadership as an individual trait or skill set or some magical diploma you get or like something strikes and suddenly I've gone from being a manager to a leader. Yeah. Or gone from being an independent person to a manager. That's a place that I really struggled, right? From going from an individual contributor into a manager and nobody sort of tells you, oh, there's a whole different set of skills you need, (laughs) right? Yes. There's a whole different set of understanding that you need. So I think that you can be both a leader and a manager. I think the trick is understanding what the differences are. Yes, absolutely. And being able to understand how to get good at one or understanding where your preferences or strengths lie, working through that. Totally. Yep. Agreed. I looked at your LinkedIn profile and I thought it was interesting because you literally had one sentence where you described yourself in terms of what you do and what you love. I can't even remember what it was. <laughs> but first of all, I just have to say that it was remarkable that you did it in one sentence. And I just think that's so elegant and clear. And I just love that. Thank you. What you said was passionate about using the power of storytelling to make the world a better place by inspiring, empowering, and connecting community leaders on the front lines of change. I love it. And I feel like it could be applied to so many people and what they do or what they feel like they want to be doing. Could you say more about what's there and what that means to you? Sure. It's everything, actually. It really is. You said it and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's actually, that's exactly what I do and what I love to do. (laughs) Yeah. And like most things with me, there's a ton of theory behind it. There's a ton of research behind it like hundreds of books that I read. Pete would be rolling his eyes right now if he heard me. (laughs) 
humans have always organized themselves and decided to make change as a result of story, whether it's around a campfire, at a funeral, the first day of the new year when you tell a story to yourself about what you're going to change, and then you share that story with others. We tell stories to each other as a way to organize our internal selves and connect it to our external selves. And that is just a very human thing. Stories live inside you and then they become purpose when they are expressed outside of you. And I'll credit my friend, Laura Galinsky for that insight, but that's how a story becomes purpose. And then change happens when you share something with someone and you make an agreement to do the thing and then change begins. So change is not an individual sport. So storytelling is our most powerful tool for changing anything in the world today. And then the inspire, empower, connect piece is really about what I believe to be the three fundamental inputs that a human being needs to decide to take a new action or to double down on an action they've already decided to take. Inspiring somebody is about answering the question of, is this right or is this good? Is it the right thing for me to do or is it the right thing to do in the world? And you can do that with a story. You can unlock, you can move people from their seats to the streets with amazing stories. That catalytic incentive is the inspire. Empower, before you do anything, you need to ask yourself, can I do it? Can I do this? Is it possible? And so one of the things that I do at Participant and that was a real piece of Girl Rising was how can you create tools, opportunities, or pathways for people to move from, hmm, okay, I'm inspired, I want to do it, but how? What's the toolkit? What's the on-ramp? For example, I want to pick up the trash in my neighborhood. I'm inspired because I just saw a movie about trash on beaches. What's the tool pathway or opportunity? You know what? Saturday. Saturday, I'm going to invite my friends and we're going to choose a day on the calendar. And that's the moment. And so as a social change practitioner, I'm always thinking about the tool pathway or opportunity that would empower someone to move from inspiration to action. The last piece is connect. If you want to make change in your organization, in your family, in your neighborhood, change happens when many people come together and when they decide that they are inspired together. So connection is a core piece of making change in any organization or structure, and it's the connection between human beings. So the question that you're answering is, what is everyone else doing? Or Seth Godin puts it as people like us do things like this. So if you are in a tribe, if you're in a company, like people at this company, we behave this way. So how do you connect people who believe the same things, catalyze them, give them an opportunity, and then connect them to each other? And then you've got, oh my gosh, you got a movement. <laughs> right. <laughs> so those three things, when I think of broadly the what I try to do every day in the work that we do at Participant is those three things. So I feel like you probably either did or could have written that and said what you just said before you became a leader yourself within your work. So I'm kind of curious about how what you've just said, or just generally the things that you're passionate about, storytelling and making a change in the world, how did that shape your leadership? How does that show up for you as a leader day to day? First of all, I want to just mark that I've had privilege my whole life, because what I was going to say is that I've always been curious, I'm pretty determined, and I'm relatively articulate. And the reason I mark my privilege is because 
when I've stood up and said, hey, what if we do something like this a bit differently? Or, hey, I've got an idea, want to come along? Or, hey, I'm going to leave this job because it's no longer serving me and start something completely new, try a completely new thing, which I've done now like five times in my career, literally walked, walked out and started something completely new. There's a certain privilege that I have as a we're discovering as a society really matters. So I have one parent college educated, education through college was paid for me by my parents. I'm a white woman. All those kinds of things have allowed me to walk into spaces and be heard in ways that not everyone has access to. So I think about that. But really, the desire to make a change in the world has always come, yes, altruistic. I went to a private high school where every single day we went to chapel and it was a moment of deep impression for me. I'd had some tragedy happen as a kid, and I was kind of lost during those years. And every day in chapel, the headmaster would say, to whom much is given, much is expected, and you have the gift of an education. It is expected that you use the education to live up to the values of the school, which was one of service. He who serves rules is the motto of the school, Groton School in Massachusetts. Now, late in life, I understand how deeply that that basically programmed me to be focused on service. And then it was really about going with curiosity, following curiosity. So service plus curiosity is what leads you to stumble into the kinds of roles that I've had. Wow. I love that. You could say that that epitomizes servant leadership, right? Is he who serves rules. How does that show up day to day? You working with your team, how has that evolved for you as a leader? How have you been able to demonstrate or feel like you've been able to maybe even live up to the leader that you would want to be? I've learned a ton this year. It's been a really tough year for leadership the last 18 months, I think, particularly in inside organizational infrastructures. Yes. You actually coined it servant leadership. You're absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head. Every day I wake up and I ask, how can I be of service? What's my best, highest use? How can I be of service? And I have found that if you ask yourself that question, you never go wrong. You never go wrong because your incentives are actually oriented towards what I was saying about leadership, which is setting a vision, but then listening, listening to what they might need to feel confident, competent, supportive of that vision. Mostly leadership is about understanding what people are afraid of and trying to meet their needs around fear, trying to make a consistently supportive environment trying to see people who might be afraid to speak up in a meeting, but have a lot to say. So figuring out what kinds of other spaces you might make to hear from them. I guess I just am always trying to ask myself, does everyone on the team have what they need to bring their full gifts to the work that we're doing? In a lot of what you've been hitting on in our conversation so far, it brings me back to like emotions, like how are people feeling? How can you get in touch with how people are feeling? And I think there's an element of meeting people where they are, but then moving towards something else. Perhaps I was reading an article when you were talking about storytelling and movies and the fear and guilt versus inspiration and hope. How important do you think emotions are in leadership? Yeah, I think emotions are really important in leadership. When we think about campaigning a movie, we ask ourselves some really specific questions about how the movie leaves you feeling because it's very difficult to campaign a film that leaves the audience in a non-activated space. 
And what that means is that if people are just feeling like plain old compassion, really important emotion, and that film just may want to live in the world as a gift of compassion to close gaps of understanding, but compassion is not an activating emotion. So activating emotions are hope and inspiration. It's something that makes you feel activated towards something or more short-term transactional things like fear and anger. They're very activating emotions, guilt. I prefer not to use them in social change because they're very transactional. Mostly when people feel fear, guilt, or anger, they want to just get in front of the thing that made them feel that way and just chop it off versus hope and inspiration last a lot longer in terms of being a motivating force. And anyone can use that information. When you're giving a speech, think about what you're trying to get the audience to do. And if it's a quick transaction, you may want to lean into some fear or anger or guilt. If you just want them to do something as soon as the thing's over, you could do that as a tactic. If you want to really have them rearrange their insides and have a new purpose on the outside, then inspiration, hope, and having them see things in a new way is a much more long-term outcome or feeling to go for. In terms of leadership and emotion, the history of leadership has been very much about who's holding power and being right and having the answers. And that works well if your team has few choices and your hierarchy is really the only source of information and safety. In the old school way, like in the 1970s, you had a job, you were in a hierarchy. It was really hard to get another job. You'd have to like leave the office and look at the classifieds and apply. And maybe a friend tells you about something. You have to take time off for the interview. Your choices were limited. And so power and hierarchy were much stronger. And the boss was always right because the employee had no choices. In the 21st century, leadership, it's totally different. It's all about choice. Our employees have many, many choices about where they can work, even more so now with COVID, that geography is not a limit anymore. And so it becomes a much more humanistic, focused effort leadership. It comes much more about communication and understanding and having your team feel heard and seen and valued. That's mostly what human beings want, sometimes even more than salary. Yeah. Right? That's right. Thinking you can pay your way into empowering your people is crazy to me. I think that's a really interesting observation. I still have a lot of clients who are highly educated, cream of the crop in terms of both their education and their background and privilege, who still, I think, feel like maybe they don't have as much choice as they really do, or are in jobs and are not doing the things that you described at the very beginning of our conversation, like, am I learning? Am I growing? Am I still curious? Do I still love what I'm doing? Yes, stay. No, leave. (laughs) I feel like maybe that they're still back in the 1970s where they feel like they don't have as much choice. Why do you think that is? Or have you noticed that? Yeah, I think that's a lot to do with the narratives of our society. I mean, I'm getting pretty meta here, but I am actually working with a consortium of folks who believe that we need to reimagine capitalism, moving from a shareholder perspective to a stakeholder perspective, not just maximizing profits, but understanding the needs of people and planet as a part of the value chain for any business and trying to close gaps of inequality. And so what we're really talking about is paradigms of capitalism, but I wonder how many of the people that you're talking about are either primary breadwinners and or male. So how many of them fit in what would be considered to sort of be the hunter paradigm of society where their job is to go out every day and provide 
and protect. And one of the things that I think we've overemphasized in Western society is around what it means to provide and protect. Does it mean a giant house and a huge mortgage and a second home and a fancy car and unlimited boxes from Amazon? And that we have really not spent enough time thinking about internal well-being and a sort of prioritization of values and what it means to have a full and rich life. There's a great book that you may have read called Immunity to Change. Immunity to Change. Yep. Right. And it really talks about what are the stories that you're telling yourself about the how you can't change. The narrative that you tell yourself about what is fixed versus what is changeable is really powerful and it's supported by society, right? And so you have a high powered job, but you're miserable. There's a loss associated to stepping back from that high powered job. It just feels too great. And so it's the 1970s, but inside your own head. So the constraints are still there, but this goes back to my primary thesis, which is stories are the most powerful tool for change. And so the story you're telling yourself becomes the one that's constraining you. And that's probably about your position, success as compared to the neighbors, success as compared to what your father thought you should be, success as compared to your sisters. We're always comparing ourselves. We create our own handcuffs. This is a lot of the work that I also do with my clients is thinking about that narrative. And I think you're right. A big part of that work is just stepping back and realizing that you have a narrative that you're telling yourself. 100%. Right? (laughs) People don't think that they're telling themselves a story, but if they take nothing from this podcast, it would be that every single thing we do in life is a story we're telling ourselves. Even that a dollar has value, right? If we all stop believing that those green things that came from the federal government had any value, and by the way, we're closer than ever to that because guess what? We all use our phones. So why are we carrying all that dirty money around? Whoever thought that you should trade like rectangular objects that a thousand people could touch in the age of COVID? (laughs) That's a dumb way to make an exchange of goods, right? Yes. That's a pretty powerful story that those green bills have value. If nothing else, think about the story you're telling yourself and then start to challenge yourself with different ways of thinking. I'm really interested in the minimalism movement. Go on Netflix, watch some stories about people who are living in tiny houses, watch some people who've subscribed to minimalism. Wow. Think of the possibilities if you thought in different ways about what had value in your life. We all have narratives. Like you said, everything that we do and all the decisions and actions that we take, behaviors that we have come from a narrative and a story that we're telling ourselves. It can be pretty exhausting if you examine all of that, but... Sure can. Again, this is when Pete starts to roll his eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Which story maybe is really getting in the way, right? Like how do you prioritize and say, oh my gosh, like this is really something I need to look at, or this is something that's really causing me some pain. How do I examine it? Take a look at it. What's a new narrative that I could potentially adopt instead of this old one that's keeping me back? It's not serving me. Yeah. I think the young people are actually better at this than we are because they have grown up with a steady digest of diverse narratives through their social feeds. So they're much more flexible in their thinking about what a rich life could look like. I really admire those folks. People complain about whatever they're called. Gen Z's, Gen Z's. Yeah. And they're complaining and it's like, you know what? I kind of admire the fact that they're like, I'm done at five o'clock or whatever it is. 
they're willing to take risks and willing to prioritize differently than I think older generations are. And I think maybe it's not perfect, but I think there's definitely something to learn there. One other thing that I'd like to talk about, and you touched on it, is gender. Being a woman who has been a journalist, has traveled, has been in the movie business, how is being a woman, of course, that's all you know, (laughs) but how has being a woman impacted you as a leader, impacted you in the work that you've wanted to do and you are doing in the world? I think a couple of ways. My mother never went to college and her mother told her that the best use of her time was to learn to look pretty and to do the flowers properly. And having a mother who's whip smart, has read thousands of books, she's an avid reader, amazing vocabulary. She was so resentful of the lack of opportunity that she had. She was so resentful of what she saw as a patriarchal structure of society. She was born in the 1940s that she really impressed upon me that I could do anything as a woman, that women are super freaking smart and capable. And she would say more capable than men, which I do not subscribe to that. I think that we're really wonderful match pairs when things work. So that is one way that being female has impacted me because I was really ambitious and confident because I was full of my mother's confidence. And I feel like that confidence was sheer force of will on her part. And then the second way it's impacted me is that Girl Rising, which was really a campaign to have more people in the world from parents to presidents understand that educating girls has an outsized impact on economic drivers of all kinds. So an economic argument to a social issue was what Girls Rising was all about. And I was deeply, deeply passionate about the work. Because of the same thing. I know from my mother and then I know from my life experience that when you under invest in 50% of the population, the outcomes are not as good for anyone, including the boys. Girl Rising was an incredible opportunity for me professionally to be creative, to be brave, to take risks, to learn all sorts of new skills from a leadership perspective. And I was purely driven by passion and will that would not have been the same if I was a boy, let's say. Finally, I think that I was talking a lot about how the world has changed and how the architecture of all of our systems has changed from being closed systems like hierarchies to open systems that have been made possible by connections through Facebook and email. And we now live in a much more highly connected society where access to information. Like when I wrote history papers, you had to go to the library and look something up with a card catalog. Just getting the information was a challenge. Now information is ubiquitous. And so it's what do you do with the information that matters? And we know that how you work in a team is way more important now than it even was 30 years ago, because before half your job was getting the information and then only half your job was figuring out what to do with it with your team. And now 98% of your job is figuring out how to work as a team. And I think that women as relational, instinctively relational people, and I say this through millennia of development of different kinds of human operating systems, male operating systems and women's operating systems, women, we are deeply relational in terms of how we're wired for reasons of survival. There was a 
book called The Athena Doctrine about seven years ago, I would say, where these two sociologists traveled around the world twice and they interviewed everybody about the leadership skills of the 21st century and what was important. And it turned out that feminine leadership skills, cooperation, collaboration, conversation, all that sort of thing, were going to be much more highly valued in the 21st century. And so I'm feeling pretty lucky because I think they were right. (laughs) (laughs) When you founded Girl Rising and you made the centerpiece movie, how did it change your view as a woman, as someone of privilege, being white, growing up in the United States of America? I'm curious how it it ended up impacting you. I actually was born in Kenya. Okay. And I spent a lot of my formative life traveling. My father worked for the World Bank. And so every two years, he was given a stipend to take his family home for a month. And our home was Nairobi, Kenya. And my mother would save up all her money and find all sorts of different modes of travel for us to see as much of the world as possible on the way to Kenya. Wow. So I grew up with a deep understanding of how sheltered and privileged I was growing up in the United States. And again, to whom much is given, much is expected. I wanted to be in the foreign service. I wanted to use my education to close gaps of understanding internationally and avoid World War III. Like I was really interested in nuclear nonproliferation and (laughs) diplomacy and foreign policy. And so I thought, oh, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a diplomat. It turns out that in places where girls are educated, there are fewer wars. There's less conflict. There's lower poverty rates, lower infant mortality rates, all the things. I was very aware that girls all around the world were being held back because of their gender in ways that I only experienced in the lightest touch kind of way in the United States, right? Right. I learned a million things doing Girl Rising, but I did not learn how privileged I was. I'm a naturalized American, but as somebody who grew up in the United States versus being a girl growing up in a place where I could be married off as a child, I could be left at home to labor. So Girl Rising was really a way to use storytelling to raise people's awareness about all the different ways that just being born a girl sets you up for a difficult life in other parts of the world, mostly because of belief systems about the value of the girl. Like, why educate the girl? She's not worth anything. That's right. But yeah, what an amazing difference it would make (laughs) and hopefully has evolved. Yeah, there have been great strides in girls' education. There's a lot to do. The tragedy of Malala's shooting in 2012 was a major moment of reckoning for the world around girls' education. Then the girls who were kidnapped in Nigeria by Boko Haram was another global call to action around girls' education. The aid organizations have girls' education programs, and many more governments are taking girls' education as a priority now than were 10 years ago when we made Girl Rising. And obviously, that is not, I take no credit for that change. I'm just one drop in a very big bucket of drops of all sorts of leaders and advocates who've been fighting the same fight. But it kind of goes back to, first of all, one more drop or a few more drops is better than nothing. I feel like your philosophy is there's only so much I can do in the world, but there is something I can do. So what can I do? And I imagine Girl Rising and what you're doing with Participant are those drops that you yourself can make as participating and changing the world? Definitely. I would say what my epiphany when I left ABC News was that in global development, storytelling was an underutilized tool to tackle global problems. And Girl Rising was a response to that. There were these organizations that were trying to end general mutilation. They were trying to rescue girls from child slavery. They were trying to raise the 
age of child marriage, right? There are all of these efforts going on to protect girls, but you can't do any of it if their parents don't believe that the girls are valued and if the presidents of their countries don't believe the girls are valued. And so to me, what you need to change beliefs is story. And in the nonprofit world, there's no budget line for story. It's called marketing and you're paying on Charity Navigator for it. Like you're really penalized for it on Charity Navigator. But you would never ask a brand to try to build something of substance without having any money to tell their story about what they're trying to build. And yet we ask that of nonprofit organizations. And so I saw an unmet need for powerful, game-changing storytelling that could support the activities to create, I call it creating an enabling environment. So using stories to create an enabling environment for these organizations to do their work was the intervention that I saw missing in global development. I don't want to compare myself to Jeff Skold, founder of Participant. He saw, years before I did, he started Participant in 2006, he saw that storytelling was this incredible way to create an enabling environment for change. His insight was that you needed to do it in a sustainable way. So you needed to make big, big movies. He likes to tell the joke that what's the fastest way um, to become a millionaire in Hollywood? What is it? Come as a billionaire. <laughs> but um boom <laughs> So he had a sense of humor about it, but, and his insight was right on, which is that we need more stories. And I would say, again, urging your very influential audience, what stories can you be telling inside companies? What stories can you be telling with your work that is about a more sustainable world and peace and prosperity, about the kinds of regenerative practices that we all need to be putting forward in our supply chain, about a society where workers and managers are paid in a more equitable ways. So frontline workers are not getting food stamps. That's not okay. No, that's a clarion call. That is really important. What's next for you as you think about the arc of your life and the arc of your career? I can tell you what I think about all day long. <laughs> it's related to my job for sure, which is nothing short of the survival of our society, whether that be because of climate change or extractive practices income inequality that's threatening our democracy. We need new paradigms. We need new narratives. We need new stories in our society. Those stories are ones of interdependence that my success is only complete if you too can feed your family and have success, right? That we are not an individualistic society that we're, our futures are all bound together no matter what your race or gender or sexual orientation or nationality or culture, it is a small planet getting tinier by the day. So I like to imagine a future that's more green with more rest and prosperity that's more equally divided. And I think that's possible. I think that's possible because the rates of innovation, because of human innovation being so extraordinary What's next for me is to continue to try to bring my skill set, which is around not necessarily making the stories, but understanding the dynamics of story and how that meets up organizational or societal change. That's what I think about all the time. Okay. And it's big. So I have an amazing platform at Participant to do that work. But what does that look like going forward? Well, Holly, you are a woman to watch. And so I cannot wait to see what you continue to do and the influence and stories you continue to 
both tell and help others reach other people with. Thank you so much for your time. I cannot wait to have the conversation with you and Peter <laughs> It'll be and fun. talk about your partnership. So we'll do that next. And really, again, thank you so much for your time and your insights. This was so much fun. Thank you, Winnie. And thank you so much for the opportunity to chat. It's always fun to chat with you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winnie Da Silva. Could you take a few minutes to provide a rating or write a comment on Apple Podcasts? Also, reach out to me at www.winniedasilva.com to learn more about my work in executive coaching, leadership development, and team effectiveness. If you have your own story of overcoming a leadership challenge you'd like to share, please email me at winnie at winifred.org. Maybe I'll even have you on my show. Thanks so much.